Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Every one of us in Europe, the Americas, and really the whole world has been affected by a German man who, according to legend, came to instigate his revolution by nailing a list of grievances on a door. That event is now known as the Reformation, and the man was named Martin Luther. But there were a whole slew of other events and individuals before and after Mr. Luther who fed into and expounded on reforming not only a particular religion, but humanity as a whole. To help us think about the Reformation with a more complete understanding is Dr. Carlos Ayer, who has written a rather long work simply called Reformations, and he's our guest today back by the woodpile. There's lots of great stuff in the book, and over multiple episodes of the podcast, we're going to try to touch on as many as we can. The first question, why the book? There's a lot of books out there already about the Reformation. Uh, I'm curious what possessed you to, to take on such a task because your book is, is not a small read. I started writing this book in 2009. Uh, no, 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 excuse me. I started writing the book in 1999 when things were very different. I've been teaching Reformation at that point for over 20 years, and I didn't like any of the summary textbooks. I was unhappy with all of them. So I started writing it. I didn't realize it would take me 17 years to finish. So a lot of stuff has happened since 1999, yes. And actually, if I had written the book in two years, this was my original plan, it would have been a very different book because so much has taken place in Reformation studies. But the main, the main reason that I was dissatisfied with previous Reformation histories, summary histories, was that, of course, they were focused, if not exclusively, then almost exclusively on the Protestant Reformation. And they might have had a chapter, if that, on the Catholic side of the Reformation. So um, I, I thought it was time to write one that included both of them as twin Reformations, plural, hence the title Reformations, plural. And uh, also, all, all of the existing Protestant Reformation histories back then in 1999 were almost, not almost exclusively, but very lopsidedly focused on Germany and on Lutheranism. I thought it was time to address that imbalance, too. So what I set out to do was to write, give everybody equal time and tie all of these together and see in which ways they were uh, all connected, and at the very same time, how, although they were all connected, they were all so different, and they, they hated each other so much. Mm-hmm. And what difference that polarization and fragmentation had on the rest of Western history. So, to go back, to, I guess, to my second question, 
Has there been a wealth of material that surfaced, and what would that look like? Here's what happened. It's not that new material was suddenly discovered. The material had always been there. It's just that nobody had bothered to look at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the big change began to happen in the 1960s and 70s, when instead of being dealt with primarily as a religious an overwhelmingly theological issue. Historians started to look at the social and political side and the cultural side of the changes brought about by the Reformation. So all that material related to that had been there is just that historians began looking at it. So, you know, for instance, you know, the question, what made entire cities in Germany become Lutheran overnight, you know? You have to look at all sorts of things other than theology. It wasn't just the theology that excited people, that excited burghers and, and you know city councilmen to change their religion. It was uh, everything was connected, and that's the thing. Although everything had always been connected, politics, social issues, economic issues, cultural issues, and, and religious issues. All these things have been connected before, but the connections had been ignored largely. So historians began to look at these things. And one reason also that it it started to make much more sense to include Catholics in Reformation was that if you look at those social, political, cultural changes, rather than the theological ones, you realize that all of these different churches were addressing the same issues but they were addressing them differently, of course, but they they tended to have a, a great concern over the same issues. I want to back up for our listeners to kind of set the stage for what would become the Reformation, or the Reformations, as you put it. It seems like after Constantine, one of the biggest issues that the church was battling was all their new converts. They weren't quite shedding all of their pagan practices and thinking. Can you talk about some of those battles? It's a battle that existed even before uh, Constantine made Christianity legal. Oh, sure. Was that, how do you change somebody's religion? You know, when when individuals became Christians in the old Roman Empire, or even outside of the Roman Empire, you know, in places like uh, what is now Iran, uh, when people became Christians, what, what did they convert to? The weird thing about Christianity back then, it was weird then, was that it would not accept mixing with other religions. There was only one God, and there was only one truth, and all this other stuff couldn't be folded in. And ancient religions tended to do that. They were very syncretic. They, they borrowed from each other. And mixing and matching was not a problem. As a matter of fact, in the ancient Roman Empire, um, many people had multiple religions, just like people nowadays have multiple insurance policies, right? Oh, maybe, maybe this one will help. Maybe that one will help. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll offer to this God and I'll offer to that God. But Christians wouldn't put up with that. So the change over to Christianity, once the empire itself became Christian, and once 
the empire fell. And then Christianity began to be absorbed by the barbarians who invaded the Roman Empire. The problem became, well, okay, so we're not going to allow other religions, but how how does one make absolutely everyone a Christian? And that took centuries and centuries. But back the pro- progress, the pro- process was never finished. That's the, that's the issue. By the time we get to 1500, all of Western Europe and most of Eastern Europe has been entirely Christian. And the only other religion allowed has been Judaism because they are God's chosen people and you can't, you can't mess with them. Mm-hmm. Although people persecuted them right and left and actually they were expelled from England and from France and then later from Spain and parts of Germany too, they were expelled. But if Christianity is the only allowed religion and everybody's Christian and the entire socio-political system is there working hand in glove with this other institution, the Christian church, how do you make people good Christians? And and even more than that, how do you ensure that everybody is on the same page? And how do you wipe out whatever has been left over from the previous religions? So you get to 1500 and Europeans who are all baptized. They're all baptized Christians. You know, it was the law. You had to baptize your child. So everybody's a Christian, but what what do they really believe? There was a whole sort of uh, root system. If you view it as a tree, right, in the root systems, the, the roots of people's religions went deep down into the pagan past. And that was never completely erased, which is why, you know, we still have uh, superstitions such as, you know, don't let a black cat cross your path or, uh, you know, whatever any other superstition is. Uh, All of these things stayed there. But basically the religion of European Christians around 1500 was many things at once. One of its most important functions was to solve daily problems. Cope with all of the pain and suffering that life brings on you. Because that was not different then than it is now. Except their medical uh, knowledge was, was poorer than ours. So if you, know, if you got sick, what did you do? Uh, there's been research that has proven that if you could afford doctors back around 1500, People who afforded doctor could afford doctors had a much higher death rate because doctors were so bad. So people turned to religion to solve their problems. And part of this involved medieval Christianity had evolved in such a way that you didn't pray to God directly all the time. Uh, God was considered pretty much like a king. As a matter of fact, heaven was conceived of as a court in the full sense of just, you know, the, the king's court or a court of law. And as in real life, you just didn't, no citizen could just go and talk to the king. The system of uh, intercession was set into place. 
you 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 prayed for all the other holy dead Christians who were already in heaven and could intercede for you. So that was part and parcel of the medieval religion. It was also very physical. You had physical points of contact with the divine. You know, you had the uh, the relics, the remains of the saints. You had images. You had all the seven sacraments. They all involved matter in some way, if not water, then oil or bread and wine and so on and so forth. It was very physical religion. And this was all very messy, extremely messy. And there was no way that anyone in church and state could fully 100% control what the people did or thought that was part of their religion. Well, so having said what you just said, I, you know, I think some of the Protestant or the people that would become Protestants, some of their criticisms of the the church was they had, I guess in a way, given up on fighting like the the combination of paganism and Christianity. And so they would see like worshiping or praying to saints or icons, reverence for icons, <laughs> or as idolatry, of course, uh, attempting to m- manipulate God via works and money and rights and all that. Did the church just kind of give up, or was it something Rome never gave up on, but the, the local parishes just couldn't stop it, or how did that play out? Well, the thing is that, the, you know, the church itself, we're talking before 1500. Mm-hmm. Before 1500, the church itself taught this whole intercessory system was very good. It was right. It was correct. So they weren't going to try to teach people not to pray to saints because that was part of the theology that evolved from very early on. We have evidence of it from the first century that Christians were already venerating the martyrs and that the martyrs were believed to be capable of interceding in heaven. The whole idea of the communion of saints, uh, one way of explaining it is this. The communion of saints means not not that, that the church doesn't just exist in the world, in the here and now. That the church is not just the number of living Christians alive on earth. The church includes every Christian who has ever lived. And that the living and the dead are connected. And that was part and parcel of of medieval Christianity, both in the West with the Roman Catholic Church and in the East with the Orthodox Church. And this is what Protestants began to challenge in the 16th century. They rejected the whole idea that the living and the dead were connected. The dead were dead and gone. You couldn't pray to the saints, and you couldn't pray for your dear departed loved uh, family members either, which was part and parcel of medieval religion was that you could pray for your dead relatives or dead friends because You know, they might not have gone to heaven. There was that other very messy bit of theology, which is the the point at which Luther began his Reformation, was the whole idea that when you died, you had three places where you could end up immediately. But very, very few people, it was believed, went directly to heaven. And relatively few people went directly to hell. You had to be really bad to go to hell. 
So most people ended up in this third place, purgatory, which was some other place somewhere, some other dimension where you uh, gradually, outside of time, this is where it gets complicated. This is all outside of time. You cleanse yourself. That's what purgatory means, the place of cleansing. And eventually you're redeemed. So actually, the whole idea, the whole question of, you know, what does it mean to be saved? How are you saved? This is a question that Luther changes. Luther wipes out purgatory. And he says there are only two two destinations when you die. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. How do you get to heaven? And that's where Luther came up with this extremely complicated theology of salvation by faith alone, which was his, his entry point into dismantling the whole system. But basically it was severing the connection between the living and the dead. That was the entry point for the Protestant Reformation. And they went on from there to sever other connections, including the connection between the physical and the spiritual, which is what the other great branch of the Reformation did, the Reformed tradition, which began in Switzerland. There is where the opposition to images and relics as idolatry really took hold. Luther really didn't care about doing away with images. Well, relics, yeah, because relics, the, you know, the saints, nobody's perfect. That was Luther's thing. Nobody's perfect. Um, but Luther didn't uh, oppose religious imagery. It was the Swiss Reformed who did, thought it was all idolatry. And um, Luther continued to believe that Christ was really present in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. He said, yeah, he's really there. You can't explain how that was his thing. You can't explain how it happens, but it does happen. He's there. He's real. The Swiss reform refused to believe that. Again, severing this point of contact between matter and spirit. Christ cannot really be present in the Eucharist. No way. It's only a spiritual presence. And um, another great change in which both the Lutherans and Reformed and everybody else, all the other Protestants agreed was miracles no longer happen. This is another great Protestant teaching. Miracles occurred only in the Bible. So in the New Testament, yes, you read about all kinds of miracles, and the apostles performed miracles, yes, but the Protestant teaching across the board, no matter what kind of Protestant you were, was that when the last apostle died, which is believed to be around the year 100, miracles stopped happening. God didn't miss with the laws of nature anymore because the truth of the gospel was already in place, and that was the only reason you needed miracles. The apostles could work miracles because they needed to convince people that Jesus was the Son of God. But once the last apostle died, poof, no more miracles. And so much of medieval religion was about seeking miracles, especially miraculous cures for all of the terrible things that happened to people. Today, when someone calls themselves a humanist, 
we often think of a moral philosophy detached from or at times hostile towards religion. So first, can you describe the humanism of the 1400s and then talk about the role it would play in setting up the conditions that would aid in the reformations? Humanism, as a, as a term that historians used, began to be used in the 19th century. Uh, people in the 1400s, who we now call humanists, did not call themselves humanists. But there was a movement, you know, uh, began in Italy in the 1300s, and it really took off in the 1400s in Italy, and then it spread elsewhere to revive the study of ancient culture. Greco-Roman culture, as well as uh, early Christian culture. They're all bound together. All these people were Christians. And the point was, they believed that when the Roman Empire fell, Western culture became uh, very primitive again, barbaric and, and, and basically backwards. Everything had been fine as long as the Roman Empire was in place. Then when the Roman Empire fell, everything went to hell. So you had to recover that lost past. And you had to return to these ancient sources to rebuild civilization and culture. So the same model applied to ancient culture as it did to the Christian church. This is where the Protestant Reformation owes its birth to the Renaissance, to the rebirth of classical culture. These people who we now call humanists because they studied the, what we now call in colleges the humanities, you know, culture, human culture. They wanted to fix the present by using the distant past as a model. And it was obvious to just about every educated person that the world as it was, was far from ideal that the ideals of ancient culture and the ideals of the Christian religion were not being lived up to. And they had to be fixed by returning to the sources, ad fontes, Latin means to the fountains, to the springs, to the sources. And many of these humanists, of course, when it came to the Christian religion, turned to the study of the Bible, and especially the Bible in its original languages in Greek for the New Testament and Hebrew for the Old Testament. And many of them labored uh, quite intensely, you know, trying to find what the earliest, oldest texts were so that the truest possible version of the Bible could be brought to life again. And this also involved translations. You know, how do you get to the perfect Bible? in the original languages. And then from those original languages, how do we come up with a perfect translation for people to be able to understand it? And all of this was going on in the 1400s. And then in the 1500s, Luther is the first, but he's not the only one to come along and say, you know, we should reform everything according to the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. He was not the first, the, the only one to say that, but he's the first to insist that the church itself had to be reformed that way. Who succeeded? Let me add that, because there were a few medieval figures like John Wycliffe and John Huss, 14th and 15th century, who had made the same 
uh, had the same battle cry, you know, let's return to the Bible alone. Let's forget all this other stuff. But they were not successful. Uh, Wycliffe and the Lollards were wiped out in England. And John Huss and his followers managed to survive for about a century or so in what is now the Czech Republic. But Luther was first to come along and succeed and actually, you know, gain this great following with the battle cry, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Well, you, you actually kind of slid into my next question was, like, of course, your main point of this book is that there were predecessors to Martin Luther that are often forgotten. You, you just mentioned a couple. Do you mind grabbing like one or two of these guys and going a little bit more specifics about uh, how they may have influenced Luther uh, and also how they differed from him? And, of course, you mentioned some just didn't survive their attempt at reform in the church. Right. Well, the thing is, um, no one has yet found a smoking gun, to use that image, linking these medieval dissenters to Luther. But the the heritage is clear. Uh, Luther actually denied that he was influenced by Huss. But I and many other historians think that he was just, you know, he, he was covering up. Uh-huh. He really was influenced by Huss and knew about him. He certainly did. Uh, but first, starting with John Wycliffe in England in the 1300s, John Wycliffe uh, insisted that, you know, things were wrong in the church and things needed major fixing. And the best way to fix things was to just pay close attention to the Bible. And actually wanted people to read the Bible and um, have the Bible translated into English so that English people could read it. But back then the literacy rate was only, it was so low. Nobody knows for sure how many people could read, but it was very few people. So you would have to have the Bible read to you. But of course it would help to have the Bible read to you in English, <laughs> whichever version of English you spoke, rather than Latin. And Wycliffe also argued many of these things that Protestants would, would later bring up. He, he would argue that uh, this whole deal of the intercession of the saints was wrong. You know, that Christ was the true mediator and intercessor, uh, that you shouldn't have images. Wycliffe and, and his followers, known as Lollards, were, were very opposed to images and actually destroyed images wherever they could. Um, Wycliffe also believed that priesthood was just an office. In the medieval church, once you became a priest, you, you had a different ontological status. You were different from other human beings. because You had the power to consecrate the sacraments, and that made you different from other human beings. So it's very hard to remove corrupt priests from office. Wycliffe argued that all offices on earth, whether they be church offices or, or civil offices, came from God. And if the person who held the office was not living up to the duties that were required by that office, they could be removed. So all offices were contingent on behavior. That's how you reform society. You get rid of corrupt politicians and you get rid of corrupt clergy. And that was very revolutionary. And his followers, the Lollards, eventually were persecuted and nearly wiped out. They went into hiding for the next hundred years or so. A very few, very few in number. But Wycliffe and his followers fell out of favor with the 
the people who held all power and authority because they they realized that his teaching was really very radical and very dangerous. You can remove politicians from office. You you can remove kings. You can remove all the dukes and, and lords of all sorts from office just because they're being bad people. So that's the reason that Wycliffe didn't triumph in England and why Lollards were wiped out. And then in, in, in Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, <clears throat> Hus borrowed heavily, was very influenced by Hus, and basically had the same teachings as, as, as Wycliffe in England. And Hus and his followers who came to be known as Hussites managed to pull it off in Bohemia. Almost all of Bohemia became Hussite, and they had the same teachings. You know, uh, they didn't like images. They didn't like intercession of the saints. Uh, they wanted to focus on the Bible alone. <clears throat> and um, the Hussites survived until Luther came along in 1517. But um, there's one trip I took uh, about 11 years ago that changed my view about Luther and Hus. And the trip I took was a, a boat trip from Prague down the Elbe River up to Germany. And actually the boat ride from Prague in Bohemia to Wittenberg, where Luther lived, very short boat trip, (laughs) very short. And it actually in the 16th century, the quickest way to travel was to travel by boat, quickest and safest way to travel. So the connections are, are there, not just intellectually and theologically, but physically, Bohemia is so close. Actually. One of the most beautiful moments, I think, in Martin Luther's career, and of course, it's probably well known to theologians and historians, but for listeners, I'd like to go through it, is his his theological breakthrough. And we should explain that Luther was, I guess, for most of his monastic life, a very tortured individual. Uh, he was convinced uh-huh. that he, he was the worst of sinners. He kind of saw God is out to get him at every slip-up. Uh, but then he has this revelation, and he writes that... Um, the quote is, they are damned who flee damnation because Christ was for all the saints the most damned and forsaken. And then I want to read from your book. Uh, so you say, ultimately then, he who hung on the cross feeling totally deserted was also he who would pass sentence at the final judgment. Jesus, the terrifying divine judge who could justly send everyone to hell, was not stern and wrathful after all, but rather a compassionate savior. Somehow, all of humankind's inescapable sins were made null and void by Christ's suffering, and especially by his feeling forsaken and alienated. So basically, uh, Christ was empathetic as opposed to the, the Christ that was presented by the church at that time. Do you want to talk about that at all? Because obviously that's a, that's a huge uh, hinge for not only Martin Luther, but the, you know, the rest of uh, Western history. Yeah, well, Luther liked to portray himself as having been a terribly self-tortured individual. Some experts question how much of this is true or how much is being exaggerated by Luther himself. 
But there's no denying the fact that he had a very difficult time dealing with his own sinfulness. It, it is dangerous to psychoanalyze anyone in the past. There have been many attempts to psychoanalyze Luther. You know, what was his problem with sin? He was, you know, I, I think in, in present, uh, present day psychological terms, Luther could be, I'm saying could be, an underlining could, be diagnosed as being obsessive compulsive or having obsessive compulsive behavior which is a psychological condition in which you become uh, obsessed with the details of your own behavior and you, you, you become obsessed with perfection, which is of course unattainable because what really drove Luther to the edge of madness as he describes it was the fact that, you know, it's not just what you do that counts as a sin, it's what you think it also counts as a sin. So you could be doing, for instance, a very nice thing, which is, for instance, helping someone who's handicapped to cross the street. Oh, but if you dig down within yourself, why are you doing this? Maybe you're doing it so you could be admired by other people. And that's a sin. So that's the kind of thinking that drove Luther to the edge of madness, as he described it. But he came upon this realization by reading Paul's letter to the Romans that, in the first place, it is impossible to fulfill the law with a capital L, you know, the Ten Commandments. Human beings just can't do that. So forgiveness given to you by God through Christ doesn't involve these specific individual acts, including your thoughts. It's a blanket forgiveness. And it is how much faith you have in this blanket forgiveness that really counts. And here's the tricky part. This is why before I said it's an immensely complex theology, and I think very few people can grasp it fully, which is why his message was not just about this. It couldn't be because this was beyond most people's abilities to grasp. Is that, okay, so fine. This is what Catholics would say in response to Luther. Okay, fine. So if you get blanket forgiveness, then why should you try to be a good person at all? And Luther's answer to this was this act of faith that you have by which you are judged. You're judged whether you have faith or not in this forgiveness is a gift of God. There is absolutely nothing you can do to gain this faith. It is a pure gift of God. And here is where things get very complicated. Luther never, ever, ever explicitly said that this gift only goes to the predestined. Luther never argued for predestination explicitly but he did so implicitly because if there's absolutely nothing you can do gain faith that is simply a gift of God, it means God gives it to some, but obviously not to others. So on the one hand, he frees people from having to obsess about every thought and every act and abolishes the sacrament of confession which is how medieval Christians and Catholics to this day 
gain forgiveness of sins is by telling a priest, oh, look, I did this, I did this, I did this, I thought this, I thought this, I did this, and you go through a long list of all the things you've done and thought wrong. Boom, you're forgiven, but you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. And Catholics believe that it was the process of going to confession and being sorry and coming back again and being sorry that made you a better person and made you try to be a good person. What Luther argued was that God gives you this gift of faith and you accept this blanket forgiveness, you will become a better person, right? Good works will flow out of you, not because you want to please God, but because God is working in you towards your salvation. So at the end of life, when you're dying, you know, you don't have to worry about going to purgatory because you have blanket forgiveness. That could be very appealing if people understand it on that level. But for instance, what do you do? What do you do with a person in your community who suddenly, uh, you know, seemed was a good Christian, suddenly turns out to be, let's say, uh, an adulterer or or a thief or, you know, some other great sin or a murderer. What do you do? How do you explain this? How, how do you keep people from doing bad things? That remained a great problem. It remains a problem to this day, right? But that's Luther's great insight. Blanket forgiveness. No purgatory. So for folks listening, if they don't know the story, Martin Luther, after he has his revelation, eventually he sends his 95 points or 95 theses to... Uh, some different people in the church. Possibly he nailed it on the door at the church in Wittenberg. And this basically, uh, to make a long story short, causes the uh, the beginnings of the, the Reformation as we know it. And so Martin Luther ends up for a time with a price on his head put there by some church officials. And there's at least one instance where he's saved from capture and, of course, a subsequent execution. Uh, to me, his life on the run and going into hiding you know, would make a, like a great Hollywood thriller. And uh, So can you give listeners a little taste of Luther's adventures, so to speak, when he was on the run? Yeah, sure. Uh, he ends up being declared an outlaw by the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles V. And when you're, when you're made an outlaw, that means anybody can kill you with impunity. So he's pronounced an outlaw at the... Diet of Worms in Germany. Diet was the parliament. So the parliament at Worms, 1521, Luther is declared an outlaw. So what happens is that the prince, the Saxon prince, who was Luther's ruler, because there was no nation of Germany back then. There were individual states, which all formed the Holy Roman Empire. There's a lot of independence in every state. Frederick the Wise, as he was known, Prince of Saxony, was Luther's prince and loved Luther and supported him. The reasons for this are still debatable. Why did Frederick like Luther so much? Well, Luther was, became an international figure and, you know, the whole world's eyes were on Saxony. But what does Frederick do to protect Luther? Frederick has Luther kidnapped by some of his knights and he's taken away at night somewhere. Nobody knows what has happened to Luther. Just keep in mind, there's no internet. (laughs) 
no television, no radio. Nobody knows what's happened to Luther. Where is he? So some people think he was killed because Frederick the Wise ordered his knights to make it look like it was a, a violent event when he was taken prisoner. So nobody knows if Luther's alive or dead. He's taken to a remote castle that Frederick has, the Wartburg Castle, and he is there from 1521 into 1522. And he's there in hiding. Uh, he grows a beard and grows his hair. He'd been a monk before. He used to shave his head and shave his face. But he grows a beard, and at the castle, he pretends to be one of Frederick's knights. And he goes by the name of George. Nope, nobody's supposed to know he's there, but of course some people know he's there. While there, he begins to translate the New Testament into German. And he spends most of his time there in his room translating the New Testament into German. But while he is away and while people don't know what has happened to him, uh, some of his colleagues at Wittenberg start to take over the movement he started. And one of them, who was older than him and was also a nobleman, uh, Andrew Bodenstein von Karlstadt, takes a much more radical approach than Luther and begins to argue against images and has images destroyed at Wittenberg. And not only that, he changes, he changes the ritual completely, uh, the ritual of the mass. It's no longer in Latin, but in German. And um, communion is distributed to everyone without going to confession. And all these radical changes start to take place in Wittenberg. And Karlstadt is becoming now um, the man rather than Luther, because nobody knows if he's alive or dead. So Luther gets, um, gets really angry and um, risking his life. He comes back out of hiding to Wittenberg in 1522 and, and throws Karlstadt out and reclaims his reformation. He shows up in Wittenberg with a big full beard, right? So he surprises everyone. Oh, no, he is alive. Look, he's here. But boy, he takes over completely, very, very quickly, uh, and sends Karlstadt packing. And Karlstadt actually becomes one of the founders. There are many, many, there are several uh, of these. The, the, the tradition now known as the Radical Reformation, the branch of which, the largest branch of which is known as the Anabaptists. So Karlstadt gets tossed out. Luther takes over again, and um, Prince Frederick the Wise protects him. And this is the reason Luther survived and Wycliffe did not, is that Luther had a prince who protected him. Hmm. And Charles V swore up and down that he was going to devote his entire life to wiping out Luther and Lutheranism. But Charles V couldn't do that because of princes like Frederick, who had enough men, enough of an army, challenged Charles V, because Frederick wasn't the only prince supporting him. There are many other Lutheran princes and Lutheran cities that would have raised armies to fight Charles V and his armies.
Martin Luther was real keen on savaging popes, bishops, priests, etc. whenever they were either unscriptural or just dead wrong on their opinions in his mind. But he often replied to criticism of his own views and writings with some pretty harsh condemnations. Now, we know that he tells on himself about his, basically, uh, he's hard on himself before his revelation. Did he ever confess publicly after the 95 Theses that humility was something that eluded him? Did he ever backtrack or apologize, you know? No, you know, this is it. Luther embraced his uh, sinfulness very openly. So after his breakthrough moment, he just let go. You know, he, he insulted people right and left. He wrote horrible things about other individuals and called them names and was very harsh towards anybody who disagreed with him. But um, no, he didn't have to apologize because he had the truth and anyone who disagreed with him did not have the truth. So therefore, he was justified in using everything he could to undermine them. You know, verbally, not physically. He never physically attacked anybody. He never went to war. Unlike, for instance, a, a, a telling counterexample is the reformer in Switzerland, in Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli, that other Protestant tradition, the reformed tradition. Zwingli died on the battlefield in 1531. He put on armor and went to war against these other Swiss who were Catholics and were opposing him. But Luther never did that. Zwingli, by the way, was not as, as we, we would say, Luther was mean to people. He could be very mean. Zwingli was not as mean. <laughs> but Zwingli actually put on armor and went to war against Catholic Swiss. Not so much over theology, but the politics of how you change the church and how you change society. Uh, but Luther said horrible things about other individuals. And the, the blackest black spot in Luther's reputation remains what he had to say about Jews, especially later in life. Because Luther had this hope that now that he had, as he saw it, he had freed the gospel, freed Jesus' message from all the medieval corruption. He really thought Jews would finally wake up and realized that, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. But of course, Jews didn't do that at all. They, they kept to their faith. They weren't going to change their mind because of Luther's theology. So Luther became increasingly hostile towards Jews because they had rejected him. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a series of treatises that were, you know, pure anti-Semitic venom. He didn't call on them to be, to, for the Jews to be exterminated, but he said all of their synagogues should be burned down and they should all be chased away and sent somewhere else. Hmm. As you can imagine, um, the Nazis in the Third Reich uh, turned Luther into a national hero for this reason. And um, Nazi anti-Semitism had as a foundation what Luther had said against the Jews. If you're still in a historical-slash-theological mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 221, a listen. 
where law and liberties, Brian Smith joins us to talk about the best and worst relationships between government and faith. Also, Dr. Carlos Ayer's own life was discussed briefly on episode 186, where we talked with Babalu Blog's Alberto de la Cruz about Operation Petro Pan, of which Dr. Ayer was one of the 14,000 children that escaped communist Cuba over a two-year period. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.